Hello and welcome to Buda Vista, episode 160. I am Ben, and I am here inside Theo's Mind Palace. Teetering stacks of worn notebooks marked Bloodborne Boss Movesets and mm-hmm. Gang of Four Design Patterns line the hallways, <laughs> dampening the echoes of the ocean size playing from a gramophone in some distant room of this stately mansion. Craning my neck to see past bell jars containing intrusive phrases like Take me to chunch, I can see a manic figure hammering madly at some planks in an attempt to board up a room marked Was I normal in that conversation? It's Theo. Hey Theo. Hey, how are you here in the place that I live? This is an interesting place. Yeah. It's a lot do, going do you on. like it? What's in that room? Uh, it just seems look, like you really don't want to go in there. Well, so, I mean, Ben. <laughs> yeah? How have you been? You sure you're okay? Yeah, no, no, I'm good. Sweaty. No, yeah. no, it's, You keep glancing back yeah. towards the room. No, no, it's all, it's all good. I mean, first of, first of all, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're a guest here in my mind palace. Yep. Uh, the true. place where I am most calm. <laughs> You don't look calm, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, most calm. <laughs> so, relatively speaking. Sure. Yeah. And um, do you like it? Do you like the decor? I feel... Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah. A lot of stuff in here. Yeah. No, I haven't really... I don't really get time to clean up what with all of the pacing, mm-hmm. uh, hand-wringing. Seems like you've been doing that thing uh, where you've been doing a stroke on the wall for every day you've been inside yes, there. Yes, that's like right. Like you view it as some sort of prison almost. Well, I mean, I don't want to... Be too Foucault. Foucault? Foucault? I have no Fou- idea. I've food literally cart. never had I don't to say get, that out loud. <laughs> I don't want to get too Foucault about this. <laughs> no, I'm having a good time. Great. Yeah. I mean, what else is there? Okay. It's just so- that while you're talking to me, you're simultaneously hammering on the door, yes. but also trying to pull the planks down. Like, you don't want to go in there, but you're compelled to do so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, my work is never done. That's so true. And it never will be. And ill-defined. And it seems like a a new room is developing with that thought as you're having it. Right. Yeah. I'm going to have to work on that after we go, but that's fine. (laughs) Great. Now, why are we here, Theo? Ben, I think we're here to just uh, talk about things that we like. Yep. And that we find interesting. I think that's a great summary of what this is. Yeah. Uh, I think this this doesn't... I don't, yeah, this counts as a spin-off series, maybe. Uh, we'll Andrew's got one. Yeah. Lucy probably has her own interests doing other things, never That's looked right. into it. Uh, but this is for us. This is uh, a, a, a spin-off series I have named without consulting you at all. Yeah, no, I, am, I kind of see the words forming in your mouth and I am already nervous, but go on. The Theophiles. Mm. Yeah, with a PH. It feels very Theocentric. Well, it's got two meanings. Okay. And would you like me to say what those are? <laughs> Uh, first and foremost, you oh, know, I God. consider myself... <laughs> Sorry. Enormous, a gallop, dog, enormous dog galloping towards us. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but he's destroying a plush, uh, the fox from the movie Zootopia. Yeah. Uh, which, when we adopted him, he had one of those, and then he tore all the clothes off it and ripped its guts out. Uh, and then we bought him a replacement one, like, two days ago, and he is well on his way to doing it again. And I think... It would be remiss of me not to note that your dog is now fucking enormous. He's a horse. Yeah. And he's looking at you. He's looking at me. And I don't think that's menace in his eyes, but no. if it was menace, I know it who I put go my money way. on. <laughs> Theophiles. Yes. Because I'm a Theophile. I'm a man that oh. loves Theo. Too kind. Uh, and also because we're going through your files. With well, our, our files. Our files. We'll, we'll back and forth on sure. this eventually. I think this is about you to me. Oh. This I'm is okay. About you. Well, this is hard for me, but we'll we'll work through it. All right. What I'll, have you got? I'll for bring me it first? up in my therapy. Um. Hey Ben, do you want to talk about involuntary parks? 
I would love to. Have you have you heard the term I involuntary have no pass? No idea what that so means. So I saw this a couple of months ago, and it's one of those things where you, when you first read it, you go, "Oh, I've got a word for that now. I I have." A, f- a phrase to define this thing that I otherwise totally did not. Sure. So it kind of started off a little bit in a in a bit of a different fashion. So um, involuntary parks is a neologism mm-hmm. uh, coined by science fiction author and environmentalist Bruce Sterling to describe previously inhabited areas that, for environmental, economic, or political reasons, have, in Sterling's words, lost their value for technological instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, have been allowed to return to an overgrown and feral state. So he kind of, I think he puts forward a, a case for a strong involuntary park term, but there are other meanings as well that have kind of spun off from them. So he sort of starts off um, in one of his uh, one of his publications. He says, uh, we can envision a strong interventionist Bismarck scenario in which a harshly paternalistic and authoritarian go- government begins reshaping the dwindling landscape wholesale. Not all governments have the ability or inclination to do this. However, economic collapse is the bonanza of regulators and war is traditionally the health of the state. Uh, the situation could conceivably give, uh, conceivably give rise to various carbon dioxide ration states with zealous blood and soil ideological overtones. Uh, because the motherland is visibly imperiled, therefore whole populations are cybernetically drafted for the moral equivalent of the people's war. So this is sort of... a, a he, he's a hard sci-fi author, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. he's sort of envisioning um, a state where we ration um, carbon dioxide fixing areas like we would ration resources. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, so he goes on to say, uh, global laissez-faire techno developments never lacked critics. However, it's hard to imagine a more devastating critique of American-style global liberal capitalism than nation-states sinking underwater. Um, so since uh, they can't be financially exploited, these uninsured areas that pop up began uh, deliberately overgrown by government fiat. Uh, this makes sense. For the faster they can suck up carbon, the slower they will sink. Um, so this is sort of his sci-fi um, idea, right, where, where these things sort of pop up. But um, where I want to kind of link to is where he goes with this. So the idea is far-fetched, but not without precedent. Uh, there's a large number of contemporary examples of involuntary parks. So A, the very large and slightly poisonous areas downwind of Chernobyl, uh, the Korean de- demilitarized oh, zone, wow, um, where which is about a mile wide and stretches across the Korean Peninsula, uh, you know, full of full of landmines, uh, but they rumor that there are tigers there. <laughs> um, the green line between Turkish Cyprus and Green Cyprus, uh, where intruders are shot or arrested. And since since it's basically spun up, the areas become reforested. You know, wildfires are, are kind of go through there regularly. Um, abandoned military test ranges, old decaying railroad lines in the in the United States, and aging toxic waste dumps, <laughs> whose poisons legally discourage humans but not animals. And so, when I read the term involuntary parks, I was like, oh, okay, that's what that is. Yeah. Right. Like that's 
that's what we call these things where um you know i think i think chernobyl is an obvious example right where essentially this gigantic area has sprung back up due to a natural due, due to a a, a man made disaster mm-hmm. but the disaster is sort of outweighed by the fact that people aren't there anymore yeah and so you get this thing where nature like repopulates right mm-hmm. which i think is we we tend to like um we tend to romanticize this idea of like oh well people are gone nature and, is healing and yeah, nature yeah. is healing yeah dolphins in venice so it, on and so forth <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of a bit stickier than that, of course. Yeah. Um, so, like, one of the main examples that, that I think uh, is sort of fresh in our mind um, after, you know, the HBO Chernobyl series, certainly Chernobyl. Um, so, they've got a 30-kilometer zone around Chernobyl. So, 30 kilometers is sort of as the as the Which I've explored flies. extensively in the video game Stalker, Shadow yes. of Chernobyl. That's yeah. right. Which is... Uh, non-fiction. It's real. <laughs> yes. Um, people forget about uh, that there's a very similar zone in Belarus, just north, almost the same size, because, of course, when the when the reactor in Chernobyl exploded, the winds took the sure. the nuclear material north mm-hmm. into, into Belarus. So they've got about 2,000 square kilometres um, sort of zoned off there as, as well. Uh, in the Polizzi State Radio Ecological Reserve, uh, and and so these are like some of the biggest nature reserves in all of Europe, right? <laughs> That's so fucked up. That's incredibly fucked up, right? And they're there because for an involuntary nature, right? We had to force ourselves to be vaguely eco-conscious by having a fucking disaster zone there. That's exactly exactly right, um, but like. It it gives rise to the image of you know like three three eyed fishes and all that sort of yeah, sort of thing white albino deer yeah, yeah and certainly when when it did start when it did first occur you know there was a, a big dumping of of um, nuclear uh, radionuclides on a forest uh, just just very close to it which immediately became uh, red so it was a forest of Scots pine trees and the nuclear material killed all of the chlorophyll in it. And all of the trees became red, so no more green in them. They all became red and started to started to die because they'd lost all of their chlorophyll, right? So they then yeah. came through almost immediately after the disaster, ploughed all of the trees, buried them under underground, and sort of away we go, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's where that that red forest term um, came from. But stuff where you know animals mutate. Uh, almost, it's almost immediately leading to their death, right? So if if animals have weird effects from the radiation, they almost immediately fall over and, and die. But otherwise, you know, animals don't live long enough yeah. to get cancer. They're just glad to have space where we're not, <laughs> right? Sure, yeah. So, you know, the, these give rise to, like, you know, new populations of European bison, uh, horses, golden eagles, white-tailed eagles. Um, the Belarus one is home to the world's largest population of the European marsh turtle. And, you know, I think it continues to be, like, super interesting for biologists for two reasons, right? Because, one, it's probably the only place where you can study the effects of long-time, long-term nuclear uh, radiation exposure yeah. to populations of animals, and it's also one of the only places you can study 
animals where there aren't human influence, right? Oh, man, this is a, this just reminds me of you just lent me the uh, Area X trilogy of books. Yes. There's a line in like the second book where uh, it's a ghost bird talking to control. But yeah. she says there's like this offhand comment about how like uh, he thinks the environment is fine because he has never been in an environment that wasn't distressed or compromised in some way. Yeah. Which is true of like... Every human being, like 99.9% of human beings are only ever in natural environments that are like they have been modified in some way to allow humans to have little day trips in them and such. And like we will never see, probably never see a properly yeah. healthy environment. Wow. Absolutely. And it's a really good example because Jeff Vandermeer is um, very uh, interested in, in dogs barking, uh, in, in ecology and is especially influenced by you know stuff like chernobyl and that kind of mm. kind of thing and I, I don't think the link there is unintentional yeah. kind of thing um so there's heaps and heaps of great examples of this um the dollop did an episode on centralia um a town in pennsylvania where a garbage fire um spread to a coal seam under the town oh that's the one where silent hills sort of vaguely exactly. based off that sort the, of yeah we've where, got our own uh, underground coal fire towns over here, don't we? Oh, in do Australia, we? I feel like we have at least one of those. Yeah, but they're so fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. And eventually, these places are emptied out, evacuated. You know, they had to eventually get everyone out of Centralia because there were big pockets of carbon monoxide um, that would just, you know, kill you in your sleep, sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is not ideal. But peaceful, though. Yeah, but the one I want to talk about today, Ben, mm-hmm. uh, is a little place called Love Canal. Now, that sounds very pleasant. It does sound very pleasant. And Ben... Um, Disgusting, but... Anytime in this story when something very cool happens, I just want you to let me know. Okay. All right. All right. So, it begins in 1890 mm-hmm. uh, with William T. Love, uh, an ambitious entrepreneur from the Western Railroad Corporation, who envisioned a perfect urban area called the Model City. He prepared plans to construct a community of parks and residences on the banks of Lake Ontario, believing it would serve the area's burgeoning industries with much-needed hydroelectricity, gave his name to the ensuing project, envisioning a perfect urban area. Mm-hmm. Sounds, and I bet that's what good. happened. And sort of. Kind, no, uh, not really. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so the Panic of 1893 caused investors to end sponsorship of the project. In addition, Congress passed a law prohibiting the removal of waste from the Niagara River to preserve Niagara Falls. So only one mile of the canal was dug, about 50 feet wide and about 10 to 40 feet deep, stretching northward from the Niagara River. Uh, Panic of 1907, back-to-back panics, um, (laughs) uh, proved economically disastrous as Love had to abandon the project. So... Uh, and then they basically, they didn't need hydroelectricity anymore because they got high high voltage power lines. You suddenly mm-hmm. didn't have to have electricity near to where you kind of were. So so eventually the project was abandoned. The canal gradually filled with water. Uh, local children swam there during summers, skated during the winters. Uh, and then in the 1920s, the canal became a dump site for the city of Niagara Falls, uh, with the city regularly unloading its municipal refuse into the landfill. Good. So far, so good. Yep. Um, Enter the Hooker Chemical Company. (laughs) And that's not a funny name. No, certainly not. So, by the end of the 1940s, the Hooker Chemical Company was searching for a place to dispose its large quantity of chemical waste. 
Niagara Power and Development Company granted permission to Hooker during 1942 to dump wastes into the canal. The canal was drained and lined with thick clay, uh, and then into the site, Hooker began placing 55 US gallon barrels full of... Uh, oh, began placing 55 US gallon metal or fiber barrels. In 1947, Hooker began uh, bought the canal and the 70 foot wide banks on either side of the canal and subsequently converted into a 16 acre landfill. Um, so then the city of Niagara Falls buggered off um, and it was just purely a landfill for this chem- chemical company. Mm-hmm. So in 1952, it became apparent that the site would likely be developed for construction. So they ceased using it as a dump site. During that 10 years beforehand, they dumped 21,000 tons of chemicals, <coughs> Excuse me. mostly composed of caustics, alkalines, fatty acids, chlorinated hydrocarbons resulting from the manufacturing of dyes, perfumes, and solvents for rubber and synthetic resins. These chemicals were buried at a depth of 20 to 25 feet, and upon closure, the canal was covered with a clay seal to prevent leakage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was that. Yep, and we never heard of it ever again. Yep. Um, so, and then by the 1950s, the city of Niagara Falls was experiencing a population increase. And Ben, who did they sell the land to? I could not be- even begin to guess. With a growing population, the Niagara Falls City School District needed land to build new schools and attempted to p- p- purchase the property from Hooker Chemical. Oh, no. Uh, <coughs> and by this point, there's 98,000 people here. Uh-huh. Um, so, during 1951, the school board prepared a plan showing a school being built over the canal and listing condemna- condemnation values for each property that would need to be acquired. Uh, during this, the superintendent inquired of Hooker with regards to purchasing the Love Canal property uh, for the purpose of constructing a school. So, they knew. Yep. They're well aware. Well aware. Um, so, in an uh, internal memo... Bjorn Clausen, the uh, vice president, wrote that it may be advisable to discontinue using the Love Canal property for a dumping ground now that we know that there's going to be a school built on it. (laughs) That's good when they have a conscience. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they've done all of the right things. Um, So he wrote to the um, company, the Hooker Company presidents, um, suggesting that the sale could alleviate them from future liabilities for the future, for the buried chemicals. Oh, my God. Yep. <clears throat> so the more we thought about it, the more interested we became in the proposition and finally came to the conclusion that the Love Canal property is rapidly becoming a liability because of housing projects near the vicinity of the project. Uh, a school, however, could be built in the centre of the unfilled section uh, with chemicals underground. Oh. We became convinced that it would be a wise move to turn this property over to the schools, provided we could not be held responsible for future claims or damages resulting from underground storage of chemicals. I I mean, this is, you know, an auxiliary point to any of this, but I love how efficiently corporations break down responsibility to the point that no one involved feels like they have any moral culpability Absolutely. whatsoever. And you just end up the point where building a school on top of this... Is it's simply the only moral option. It's so fucked. So, while the school board condemned some nearby properties, Hooker agreed to sell the property to the school board for one dollar. 
Uh, Hooker's letter to the board agreeing to enter the negotiations noted that, in view of the nature of the property and the purposes for which it had been used, it would be necessary for us to have special provisions incorporated into the deed with respect to the use of the property and other pertinent manners. Um, other pertinent matters. The board rejected the company's proposal that the deed required to be the land to be used for park purposes only, with the school itself to be built not nearby. So they basically gave it for one dollar mm-hmm. to the school board, saying, "Hey, just put a park here." Yeah. Don't ask any questions. You don't need to do a, the don't school thing. Yeah. The park's good. We only want one dollar. Oh. Uh, on the proviso that. Uh, you'll never hear from us again. Yeah, anything that happens, just happens. And don't worry about what that thing might be. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so, basically, they assigned the board, the school board, with a continuing duty to protect property buyers from chemicals uh, when the company itself accepted no moral obligation. Um, so... Not long after taking the land, the school board proceeded to develop the land, including construction activity that substantially breached containment structures in a number of ways, allowing previous trapped chemicals to seep out. Uh, So, despite the disclaimer, they went ahead, they built 99th Street School in the original location. Uh, In 1954, the school's architect wrote to the education committee, committee informing them that during excavation, workers discovered two dump sites filled with 55 US gallon drums containing chemical wastes. The architect noted it would be poor policy to build in that area mm. since it was not known what wastes were present and the concrete foundation might be damaged. So the school board then re- relocated the school site 25 metres north. Problem solved once and for all. Absolutely done and dusted. Uh, the kindergarten playground also had to be relocated because it was directly on top of a chemical dump. Oh, no. Uh, in 1955, it was completed. 400 children attended the school and it opened, um, along with other schools in the area uh, that had been built. The same year... The 25-foot area crumbled, exposing toxic chemical drums, uh, which then filled with water during rainstorms. Oh, no. This created large puddles that children enjoyed playing in. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. That's where I'm at so far. Mm -hmm. One of my friends, uh, my very close friend, Beck, grew up in Niagara. I'm going to have to ask her about this. Please do. (laughs) Good Lord. Um... So, in 1955, they opened a second school, six blocks away. Mm-hmm. Uh, during 1957, the city of Niagara Falls constructed sewers for a mixture of low-income and single-family residences oh, no. to built on lands adjacent to the landfill site. Mm-hmm. So, they're just going digging around. Hey, yep. What you got down there? Oh, what do you no. got under there? So, just to backtrack a little bit. So, it's a canal, right, that they used as a dumping ground. It was very briefly a canal, which they then absolutely packed to the brim full of... But it's long and narrow, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, hang on. I'll go back on the notes. There was... It was... uh, And we can cut this bit down. Then we probably uh, can. So, it was one mile long. And 50 feet wide. 
So one one mile that of is enormous toxic waste. Yeah, great, but only fifty feet wide. So but only fifty feet wide. If That's you're lucky, the thing. It's, you know the kind of the length sounds bad, but the width very good. It's a very manageable width. That's <laughs> um, so the school district sold a bunch of land. So the school there, but they they sold a bunch of the other land, um, and they the Niagara Falls city built about eight hundred houses on top of this canal. Um, the sale came despite the warning of a hooker attorney uh, that, as paraphrased in the min- minutes of a board meeting, due to chemical waste having been dumped in the area, the land was not suitable for construction where underground facilities would be necessary. He stated the company would not uh, prevent the board from selling the land or doing anything they wanted to do with it. However, it was their intent that this property be used for a school and for parking. I like that they're still coming back to the school idea. Yeah. Like, it's, it's the safest It's the thing. nastiest shit you can imagine. <laughs> That's why we recommend the safest option is putting children on top of it. <laughs> children always bounce back from they stuff. They do you know? bounce back. That's a lot the of thing. that vital kind Very, of life energy in them That's exactly right. Um, so, the... Um, it it went ahead anyway, right? Like because of course it did. The land where the homes were being built was not part of the the agreement between the school board and Hooker. Therefore, none of the residents knew the canal's history. There's no monitoring or evaluating of the chemical waste stored under the ground, and additionally, the clay cover of the canal, which was supposed to be impermeable, began to crack. To my mind, clay quite permeable. Yes, it's sort of like it's it's. It's ground, right? Mm, yeah. Porous, to Porous. my mind. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Kind of there's diamonds, there's concrete. Somewhere down the way there's ground. Clay is just sort of about two or three levels above water uh, as a solid material goes yes. for me. Um, so they also built a nearby LaSalle Expressway, which restricted groundwater from flowing to the Niagara River. Uh, and then they had a big wet winter. So, in 1962, the elevated expressway turned the breach canal into an overflowing pool. People reported having puddles of oil or coloured liquid in yards or basements. Oh, no. Uh, still 400 children in this in this school in 1978. This has been, like, 20-something years, by the way. Liquids... At this point. ...should not naturally be coloured, to my mind. No. Like- no, you want a good clear liquid. If you see a liquid that's coloured, it means either something is failing in your body, you're drinking some sort of uh, a Gatorade or some such where we definitely know that it's toxic. Yes. Uh, or it's a radiated waste. That's right. All bad signs. Or it could be harmless. It could be fun. For all we know. It's sort of the fun orange liquid yeah. that seeps into your house from the chemical wastewater. Guys, it's only 1978. We don't really know what chemicals are yet. <laughs> <laughs> the periodic table of elements has 10 things on it at it's this point It's mostly just time. question marks. <laughs> we've got lead, yep. we've got gold, and all the rest. Yeah. <laughs> A hypothesized material, funarium. <laughs> Extremely toxic. Do not eat funarium. Uh, so residents were suspicious of black fluid that flowed out of the love canal. <laughs> Did you do this whole thing just so that you could read that, that one sentence? That sentence one more time. Residents were suspicious of black fluid that flowed out of the love canal. <laughs> and if black fluid is flowing out of uh, your love canal, <laughs> yeah. please see a medical <laughs> professional. 
So for years, residents have complained about odours and substances in their yards or the public playgrounds. Uh, finally, the city acted and hired a consultant to do a far-reaching study. Uh, in 1977, a harsh winter storm dumped a whole shitload of snow, significantly raising the water table. The excess water got into the groundwater and raised the elevation of contaminants, including dioxin. And then during the spring of 1977... Uh, the State Departments of Health and Environmental Conservation began an intensive air, soil and groundwater sampling and analysis program after qualitative identification of a number of organic compounds in the basement of 11 homes adjacent to the Love Canal. Um, so it was also revealed that the standards at the time did not require the installation of a liner to pre- prevent leaching. So basically it's just going straight out mm-hmm. into the water table, having a good old time. Oh, man. Then two reporters really started digging in this uh, for the Niagara Falls Gazette. It's David Pollack and David Russell, who tested several sump pumps near Love Canal Hmm. um, and found toxic chemicals in them. The Gazette published reports once in October 1976 and once in November 1976 of chemical analyses of residues near the old Love Canal dump site. (laughs) It's just like a great phrase to throw around. They're up there, up near the old Love Canal dump site. Which indicated the presence of 15 organic chemicals, including three toxic chlorinated hydrocarbons, uh, which are the worst kind, I think. Mm. I don't know. I'm no hydrocarbon guy. (laughs) I'm not even a carbon guy. No. We've got any hydrocarbon heads in the the audience? Tell us if if them being chlorinated is bad. Wouldn't it suck if smart people listen to this? No, that's not the way I should be phrasing that. Yeah. Wouldn't it suck also to not be a, a smart person that listens to this podcast? Yes. Uh, um, so <laughs> then the matter became quiet for more than a year, which, so, okay, mm-hmm. we're at the point now where, you know, toxic waste bubbling from the ground, uh, basements filling with hideous black goo. Yep. Uh, just dropped out of the public consciousness. Just... There's more important things on. What year was this? 1976. Mm. Might have been something really good on TV that year. Yeah. Like, and people were just like really getting into that and forgetting about the toxic chemicals bubbling up into their homes. First year that Dragnet was on TV. <laughs> it took up a lot of people's mental energy. It's the, <laughs> no one in history has the Dragnet year. You go to ask your neighbor like, hey, can you smell something funny? And then instead you're like, did you watch Dragnet last night? <laughs> <laughs> What else was I going to ask? Ah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I'm off to watch Dragnet. (laughs) Um, So, they forgot about this for more than a year. I assume the residents didn't. uh, It's just that the world as as a whole uh, became cold towards it. I mean, Um, like, nowadays, the amount of time it takes for us to get news fatigue about an issue is like two hours. That's right. Um. And then it was revived by reporter Michael Brown, who investigated potential health effects by performing an informal door-to-door survey during 1978, writing 100 news items on toxic wastes in the area and finding birth defects and many uh, anomalies such as enlarged feet, heads, hands, and legs. What is the distinction here between a formal and informal survey? Like... I mean, because I assume this is some sort of statistical difference. Yeah. Would a formal survey be every household is accounted for? I think so. And an informal survey is you're just a guy. You, yeah, you're knocking on the door and saying, hey, got any weird feet, heads, hands, or legs? Show me those feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got Andre the Giant hands, but you're not the size of Andre the Giant? 
<laughs> he actually was walking around with a plaster cast of Andre the Giant's hands for reference. He knocks on the door and the door opens just a creak uh, and someone looks out and then a gigantic foot pushes the door closed. <laughs> That's that one yes. down as a yes. <laughs> Oh boy, this is a bad place. Um, <laughs> it's freak city. So, oh. so Hooker threatened to sue this guy, uh, Michael Brown, and he fought the firm tooth and nail for years, including on the Today Show. His book on toxic wastes, Laying Waste, the Poisoning of America by Toxic Chemicals, was the first written on the subject of toxic wastes and created a national firestorm. Uh, so before now, didn't care for books about toxic waste. No. Isn't it kind of weird? Couldn't get like- you a deal. I feel like uh, TV shows and shit that we watched as kids in the 90s, that toxic waste was like a big yeah, element yeah, of them. Yeah, absolutely. Big glowing green barrels on like um, Captain Planet, that Whereas sort of thing. Now like the like... Well, we fixed that. Yeah, we fixed gr- glowing green barrels of waste yeah. and now we have just the whole fucking planet is dying. Yeah. Which is a more potent Which... symbol maybe. Less digestible. Yes. But also... Um, Please help us, we're dying. Yeah, in my opinion, it was better when all of the waste was in a barrel that glowed green. Because you knew that was bad. You could just say, oh, look at that. Yeah. That's not good. I'm going to put that with the rest of the glowing green barrels. And now, like, every day you just read a different news story where you're like, the Arctic Circle's on fire. Uh, the UK just recorded its third highest temperature since the 1700s. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so, this became a national media event. Uh, with articles referring to the neighbourhood as a public health time bomb and one of the most appalling environmental tragedies in American history. Uh, Brown, working for the local newspaper, uh, is credited with not only revealing the case but establishing toxic chemical waste as a nationwide issue as well. Um, His book examined the Love Canal disaster and many other toxic waste catastrophes nationwide. So the dump site was declared an unprecedented state of emergency uh, on August 2nd, 1978. So Brown, who wrote more than 100 articles concerning the dump, tested the groundwater and later found that the dump was three times larger than originally thought. We thought we had it covered with just the school on top. (laughs) And then we moved that 25 metres away. Which I think, as we covered, is like half the width of the yeah. canal. I love that it's just someone being like, no, 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 no. I know for a fact the dump is from here yeah, yeah. to here. Now you're telling me it's from yeah. here to there? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this dump couldn't be more than like half a mile long, right? <laughs> I would not believe oh, no. you if you told me it was any longer than half a mile long. This dump is exactly... 13.33 feet wide <laughs> and 300 and, oh wait no I don't know how long a mile is I can't subdivide that exactly a third of a mile yeah. long and I will not hear otherwise so enter Lois Gibbs in the Love Canal Homeowners Association so she was a local mother who called an election to head uh, this association and began to rally homeowners her son Michael Gibbs began attending the school in 1977 Uh, He then developed epilepsy in December, suffered from asthma and a urinary tract infection, and had low white blood cell count, all associated with his exposure to the leaking chemical waste. Do you know if there was uh, much leaking chemical waste exposure where you grew up? (laughs) (sighs) No. So, during the following years, uh, she organised an effort to investigate community concerns about the health of its residents. 
she and other residents made repeated complaints of strange odors and substances that surfaced in their yards. Uh, in their neighborhood, there was a high rate of unexplained illnesses, miscarriages, and disabilities. Uh, basements were often covered with a thick black substance, uh, and vegetation was dying. There's yep. a couple of words in there that are massive red flags for me. Yes. Surfaced? Yeah. Rarely good. Not good. Not, you know, surface can either mean like surfacing from the water like a, a one of the Bond women coming up out of the beach in a bikini and it's <laughs> yeah. in slow motion. Sort of a sexy surfacing. Yes, but I say 90% of surfacings are something that is beneath something where the bad stuff is yeah. and then it's come up to where the stuff is that... Is good. Yeah, and that's really the dichotomy of surfacing, yeah. I think. It's, it's either the whole spectrum. It's either a kind of Megan Fox situation mm-hmm. or black goo. Yeah. <laughs> One of the two. Yep. Um, so she also discovered the chemical uh, danger of the adjacent canal. Um, so Actually, can I just... I want to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. That... Your mind for hot babe immediately springs to Megan Fox, who has not been in the public consciousness for like a decade. Was it's not my a Bond last woman. Point of point of reference. I'm not really like a <laughs> swimsuit guy. This is before you met Caitlin, so it's the yeah. last time you thought of a hot lady that was not your wife. That's exactly right. <laughs> Incredible. I don't allow myself to <laughs> entertain. Such I couldn't thoughts. imagine before that it was Elle McPherson, <laughs> which was like twenty years before. I love being here in your mind palace. Yep. It's wonderful. Um, so obviously the homeowner's concerns were ignored by not only the Hooker Chemical Company, uh, which is now a subsidiary of Occidental Petroleum, but also by members of government. Occidental Petroleum. <laughs> yeah. Like, whoopsie, we had an accident. <laughs> Poe body's nerfed. Dear God. Um, so... Since the residents couldn't prove chemicals on their property had come from the disposal site, it could have come from any gigantic... <laughs> glowing gun. green goo coming from the ground. <laughs> Someone could have Can't put prove that there. that's ours. Someone could have dropped that. <laughs> a bird might have carried that from a different toxic waste site. <laughs> How do we know you didn't bring that toxic waste with you? Uh, so they, while this whole like legal battle was going on, they can't sell their properties, they can't relocate, they can't do anything. Um, but in uh, on August seventh, nineteen seventy eight, Jimmy Carter announced federal health emergency, called for the allocations of federal funds, and ordered the Federal Disaster a- Assistance Agency to assist the city of Niagara Falls to remedy the Love Canal site, the doomed Love Canal. Now, this is the first time in American history that emergency funds were used for a situation other than a natural disaster. Uh, And Carter had trenches built that would transport the wastes to sewers and had home sump pumps sealed off. So really, the problem is the pumps bringing the stuff to the surface. Should have stopped that. Right. Yeah. Just leave it alone. elsewhere. You don't know what's down there. (laughs) Could be Megan Fox, could be Black Goo. (laughs) That's true. Uh, and this is what um, Eckhart C. Beck, the EPA administrator... Ecky Becky, as we call him. <laughs> I had to say, when he, when he had a visit in the late 1970s, um, I visited the canal area at that time. Corroding waste disposal drums could be seen breaking up through the grounds of backyards. Trees and gardens were turning black and dying. One entire swimming pool had been popped up from its foundation, afloat now in a small sea of chemicals. A float now in a small sea of yeah. chemicals. That's that Brian Eno album, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, bottles of noxious substances were pointed out to me by the residents. Like, hey, there's one. <laughs> I don't suppose that's something you're interested in. Here, there, over there, another one here. Oh, yeah. Um, some of these puddles were in their yards, some were in their basements, others were on the school grounds. Everywhere, the air had a faint, choking smell. Children returned from play with burns on their hands and faces. Like, I just feel like, and I'm not a parent. Yeah. If that happened to my child one time, yeah. I'd be like, you are playing wrong. Yes. Benjamin Jr. To learn to play better. If it happened a second time, I'd be like... We are moving to Wisconsin. Yeah. We we are located in hell. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get the fuck out of here. Hi, everybody. It's me. It's Theo. Now, I guarantee you I'm more afraid of recording this promo than you are of listening to it, so hear me out. Uh, if you haven't already, maybe check out our Patreon. It's a great way to support the show, and it gives us the ability to actually dedicate time to this thing. You'll get all of our bonus episodes. That's over 300 extra episodes in total. And we'll set up a feed over there with none of these promos, so you won't have to hear this ever again. You'll also get access to our Discord, uh, which honestly has turned into a a nice and funny place full of mostly normal people to hang out with. So that's patreon.com slash buntavista. Check it out. So at this point, we reach the evacuation. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Finally, right? So uh, I believe this is 23 years on. Yeah. Um, so the um, there was a bunch of public resistance, though, um, in actually getting this uh, recognised uh, to prove negligence. Um, a bunch of residents within the community pushed back on um, being evacuated, which I think is like it's something consistent. You know, you see it with um, Chernobyl. You see it with, with a whole bunch of places where there's there is at least some. Uh, amount of pushback on on the evacuation effort, but eventually the federal government relocated more than 800 families, uh, reimbursed them for the loss of their homes, and then used $15 million to purchase 400 homes closest to the Love Canal and demolished a whole bunch of them, uh, thereby turning them into an involuntary park. So they bought the homes? Yes. Was there any other, like... Hey, here is a bunch of money for the ongoing medical costs you and your children will have for like the rest of your life. Um, hmm. Now, it appears no. Cool. You would think yes. Hmm. Hmm. But yeah. so eventually, the the residents had to sue um, Hooker slash Occidental. Um. The federal court in 1994 found that they'd been negligent but not reckless in its handling of the waste, which is a, a fun little <laughs> distinction to make. Sure. I imagine, um, yeah, reckless would be if they were, like, actively throwing toxic sludge into people's houses while laughing while, like, out of the sunroof of a limousine versus yes. just letting them build their homes and schools on top of it. For, for several decades, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's not reckless. No, and dusting their hands immediately after the $1 sale, which... You know, great value, I guess. It's so good. Just, <laughs> I'll give it to you for simply a dollar. For, and there's no other dollar. cost. No, no cost. other cost. No. <laughs> but. <laughs> um, eventually, Occidental was sued by the EPA uh, and in 1995 agreed to pay $129 million in restitution. Uh, so out of that federal lawsuit came money for a small health fund. 
mm. and three and a half million dollars for the state health study, and then um, a bunch of residents' lawsuits were settled in the years afterwards. But there's good <laughs> news. There's good news in all of this. I don't think there is, but go on. Well, it's very pessimistic of you, um, because <laughs> the Department of Justice published a report noting that the sites have recently been successfully remediated and ready again for use. Okay. What does remediated mean here? Like, completely, like, you could dig 10 foot down, drink the water that you found there, and be like, fantastic. Okay, well, virtually all remedial activities finished. There are still some leachates. Okay. You're going to have a leachate problem. I don't fully understand what that word means, but I'm going to assume this just means that there is still a bunch of weird chemical goop seeping into... Uh, the surface f- from the groundwater. Yeah, le- leachate is when the ground kills you. Well, it's good we have a word for that. Yeah. Fantastic. Really just a feel-good feel good time. And that's wonderful. And that's just um, a success story of how the entrepreneurial spirit uh, can turn anything um, into a dollar. America really is the land of the free to sell a mile-long toxic waste dump for a dollar to a school board. Imagine if, and like, get away with it. they had just set it up as some sort of zone of exclusion that was exactly a mile long and 50 feet wide. You just yep. had to go right around it. And people that were visiting the town were like, hey, um, I just go in there. Oh, I wouldn't go in there. Don't well, go it, in the strip. Um, it's funny you say that. If you actually look up Love Canal on Google Maps, there is still a, a huge area of land that just has streets with no houses. Huh. Um, They haven't really done anything to spice it up. Uh, It's just a a big, empty section of land in the middle of Niagara Falls. It is a very weirdly shaped suburb. Uh, Sort of a parallelogram with a weird additional space. Oh, you can see a strip, can't you? My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's strange. We call that I mean, the it's not strange. Fuck up strip. It, it's very understandable. It's extremely understandable, actually. How about that? That's fucking wild. Oh, you can see the expressway and everything. Oh. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. I'd love to learn more about uh, horrible corporate malfeasance from the worst people alive and how you can just kind of get away with it. Like, how much do you reckon $120 million hurt their bottom line? Yeah, it's it's really hard to say, isn't it? And it kind of feels like perhaps 40 years too late. Mm. <laughs> well, you know what they say. Uh, I'm going to take it in a very different direction. This is probably... I'm going to say, if you plot all things from history on a spectrum, the start of the spectrum is uh, willingly poisoning children. That's <laughs> the negative end of the spectrum. Uh, and then at the other end is, oh, and that's kind of what I'm going for. Okay, so we've really taken this in two different directions. That's true, yeah. That makes us very different from, say, the band One Direction. And here we go. So, uh, just to kind of give you a sort of uh, a sense of scale for this story, I'm going to give you a reverse timeline of some big milestones in art history. Right, just to sort of get a sense of where we were, where these developments happened, starting in the present day. 2017, George W. Bush publishes a collection of 66 oil paintings 
uh, of U.S. military veterans that he's done. Weren't they nice as well? Yeah, it's lovely. He's sitting there in his Beautiful. little studio. Yep. He's just whistling to himself, uh-huh. uh, doing some paintings, uh, and he's not even thinking about it. At no point is a little voice in the back of his brain just going, a million dead Iraqis. No. No, it would be nice to not have that voice. And it's not like, you know, occasionally he's looking in a mirror and he's trying to smile, but no matter what he does with his face, his reflection isn't smiling? Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't happen to him at all. In fact, you know what? I'm saying this kind of sarcastically. It doesn't happen to him. I bet he doesn't think about this in the slightest. No. No, he's Never just even crosses his, his mind. paintings of his shitty little dog. <laughs> his dog sucks. Hanging out at the baseball. Being best friends with Ellen. Uh, loves that lady. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. I just think that... Uh, and this kind of ties in with yours a little bit in the sense that you can detach yourself from all responsibility for anything if you've done in a group, right? If you're part of an organization that's making something happen. Yeah. That probably, it genuinely doesn't cross his mind that he has ruined countless lives and families that will have impacts that will go on for generations and generations and generations and probably nothing. It's his, like, well-done steak, wearing a cowboy hat indoors, smiles to himself and thinks about a life well-lived. Anyway, 1987, uh, Andre Serrano exhibits Piss Christ for the first time. He, uh, he gets a he gets a crucifix, puts it in some sort of like a fish tank or something, he pisses in it, and then he takes a photo of it. And then people say, why have you done this? And he says, I wanted to. Seemed like a good idea. It seemed like a great idea. And you know yep. what, we're still talking about it, so I guess that means it was successful oh, art. <laughs> That's how they get you. <laughs> you piss in a fish tank and people have to talk about you. And that's Imagine a little if you life had to hack. give them a dollar every time you thought of a piece of art. I bet they would fucking love that. Wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? Uh, imagine what that would encourage, though. Like, the sort of art we would see more of. Probably bad. I would say bad. Uh, 1978, Jim Davis publishes the first Garfield cartoon. Now, we were trying to work this out before, right? Is the first Garfield cartoon... The one where he steals John's pipe. Now, it feels like it would be very easy for us to work this out. Um, it would be very easy. I So, our debate uh, went more or less along the lines of, I said no because uh, it requires too much of an understanding of the character of Garfield for it to make sense. Yeah. Your because argument said, was... Mm, yeah, I said on. yes because I really feel like John Davis has a long view of the characters that he's building. And the world that he's trying to create through his art. And, and it's just demonstrative, through, right? That's right. Just through one simple action, you learn so much about the characters. John, a man, the man, possibly, uh, has a pipe. Every man. <laughs> An infinitely yet, relatable man. He cannot smoke his pipe. A tale as old as time itself. I have no pipe, but I must <laughs> but smoke. I must smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like for me to uh, describe to you the first Garfield cartoon? Please. <laughs> Published June 19th, 1978. Uh, there's a, a sort of a two two chest of drawers, two, two drawer chest of drawers with a very misshapen Garfield on top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a somewhat more confident, suave, handsome John sitting on a stool in front of an easel. And in the first panel, he's saying here, Hi there, I'm John Arbuckle. I'm a cartoonist. 
This is my cat Garfield. Oh, I forgot John was a cartoonist. He's a cartoonist, which I, it seems like the pretense of that was dropped in later sort of things. Although it's interesting that uh, Jim Davis has the same relationship to John as uh, Jerry Seinfeld has to Jerry Seinfeld in the show Seinfeld. In that uh, it's a sort of a proxy character. Oh, Jerry Seinfeld was a self-insert? <laughs> it's hard to believe, but yes. <laughs> so our second panel here, we've zoomed in. Uh, on John and the cat. And the cat is thinking, because that's the only way Garfield communicates, because he can't talk. Uh, Hi there, I'm Garfield. I'm a cat, and this is my cartoonist, John. Uh, And then the third panel, and this is sort of the punchline of the comic, is uh, John saying, our only thought is to entertain you. Well, Garfield, that tricky little bastard from hell, he's thinking, (laughs) feed me. So, so what I put forward was sort of a, <laughs> extremely a generous, <laughs> very kind of you know, I I feel like giving giving him way more control of his craft than he has really demonstrated. Whereas what you're putting forward is that they're thinking and saying, "I have a cartoon now." Yes, and this is a sort of hello, welcome to this cartoon. And the only thing they're trying to uh, convey about the characters, whereas what you posited was Jim Davis has boldly gone out there and he has said, uh, John is sort of hapless. He's always at odds with his awful cat. Uh, The cat is a real piece of shit who is living a life of excess and luxury at John's expense. What this says is John is a cartoonist. Garfield likes food. And that was a masterstroke there, and explains why he's still at the top of his game years later. Is he still alive? He is, isn't he? Jim he Davis. Is. Yeah. Not Garfield. Garfield died. <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. Uh, in a similar vein, 1908, Adolf Hitler fails the entrance exam for the Academy of Fine Arts Vienna, seemingly on the strength or lack thereof of his portfolio. So this is the second time... Mm-hmm. He failed. Uh, by one biographer's account, he passed the the part where you have to draw some quick sketches based on some direction that you're given. But the second part of the examination where they just look at your portfolio apparently was not good. Oh, well, at first you don't succeed. Mm-hmm. And then at second, yep. also, you and don't then... succeed. And then something else. I feel like he could have explored some other things. Really, the the sky was his oyster at this point. Yeah. I think he went in the worst possible direction, to my mind. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. This is like... I, I don't know if this is... I don't know. I, there's a weird thing in my brain that... Um, I genuinely... I genuinely have a thing where if someone is quite good at doing something that takes a lot of diligence, it's hard for me to think of them as a... I mean, obviously, it's not hard for me to think of Hitler as a bad person, but that it seems like a character trait of a person that is generally good. You know, like you'd be like if you looked at a beautiful painting someone did, you think of them as like, I don't know. There's something weird about that. The capacity to paint, and then the capacity to be like the worst person in the history of the world, just don't seem to gel very no, well. No, you wouldn't expect me. them to go hand in hand, but apparently, what are you going to do though? 1814, uh, Hokusai paints Dream of the Fisherman's Wife. He sure did, didn't he? Mm. And I believe you've seen that one in the flesh. I have, I have seen it in the flesh uh, in 
Brisbane's tiny modern art museum. Um, quite striking. Um, not mm. not really sure about the right amount of time to spend in front of Dream of the Fisherman's Wife uh, looking at it. No, because you really, you're trapped between um, two awful, not, like two, your options are, if you looked at it for too quick, you're ashamed of your own nature, right? That's right. You're saying this you, this art overpowered me. It disgusts me because I'm a child. If you look at it for too long, well, you're just a man staring at an octopus. Yeah, you're the octopus pervert. You were the octopus pervert. And everyone else in the gallery is like, oh, Jesus Christ, he's, that guy got a hard on? What he's the fuck's he's standing here? there thinking, boy, I wish that was me. <laughs> and uh, we'll leave it up to the listener to decide whether you're talking about the lady or the octopus. <laughs> Sometimes uh, you're the lady. <laughs> Sometimes, you're the Sometimes you're the octopus. <laughs> That's so true. Turn of the 16th century, Leonardo da Vinci paints the Mona Lisa. What was that bitch thinking? If only we knew. We'll never know. No. All we could do is look. That's so true. Do you think... So it's a painting, not a photograph. Of that, that much I know about uh, art history, so it took him a while. <laughs> yep. Uh, do you think he just kept being like, hey, could you look uh, quizzical, but benign? Yeah, like, I need more mystery. Like, think of a, a dirty joke, but then don't tell it to me. <laughs> and then hold that thought <laughs> in your mind. No, too dirty. Reel it back. <laughs> Funny a joke. Uh, second century BC, the Venus de Milo was completed by what is believed to be a man called Alexandros of Antioch, although we're not entirely certain. That's the uh, the titty lady with no arms. So, so when when was that? The second century BC. That's, it's way older than I ever imagined it to be. And I'm starting to really think haven't... that I might be wrong, but I think I'm right. Okay. And we could find that out. Um, but instead, well, it, makes, it makes sense because they didn't have arm technology at that point. <laughs> that is true. Uh, Wikipedia says it's roughly 100 BC, which is the second century. Great, sometime between 130 and 100 BC. There you go. Yeah, it's weird because I sort of lump it into in my head with those sort of um, Renaissance era marble statues of a similar ilk. Absolutely, but it's not. It's way before that. There you go. Thank you, Alexandros of Antioch. You were ahead of the curve, except when it came to arms. Now, we're getting right back here. 10,000 BC, human hands are stencils on the walls of the Cueva de los Manos in Argentina, alongside some drawings of some Juanacos and the species of bird that bit Bolsonaro. Mm-hmm. The prophecy. Right there. Yep. This whole time. And there's also, it's weird because right next to it, there's a painting of the same man in four <laughs> separate hospital beds. <laughs> it's weird because it shows a linear progression of time, almost like history's first comic strip. <laughs> Every single time the man just looks uh, more and more sick, but somehow yeah. he keeps he keeps on being alive. What's going on with that guy, you reckon? Well, I think they probably assumed he had uh, COVID-19,000 BC. <laughs> And we could just move straight on from that. We could move straight on from that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 17,000 BC, nomadic foragers in what is now China's Jiangxi province uh, decorate the earliest clay vessels that we have ever found. Earliest That's ceramics. That's just lovely. Isn't that nuts? That's such a long time ago. You know, the pottery wheel wasn't invented until like 5,000 BC. It's 12,000 years. Like, 
That is such an unimaginable span of time between those two things. Hmm. That's fucking nuts. This sort of shit boils my brain. Uh, this is like... Prehistory stuff is the thing that I love reading when I'm high because I'm just like curled up in my living room high on my brain just being like, they were like us, but it was ages ago. What the <laughs> hell? Uh, 26,000 BC, someone in what is now Arnhem Land uses charcoal to draw an image on a rock wall. Uh, it's still there. Well, I, I think we removed that chunk of rock, but I mean, the, the drawing survived. 28,000 years. Imagine Absolutely that. nuts. If you picked up a piece of charcoal out of a fire, cold fire, well, no, the remains of a fire, fire's not cold, uh, and then you did a little doodle on the wall, and then uh, 28,000 years later, someone was like, hey, check this shit out. Imagine if you were, like, coy about it, because you weren't so good at, at drawing and just like, oh, this is a painting just for me. <laughs> no one will ever see this. No I've one done will it ever this see this. Out of the way cave over here. <laughs> This is just a little practice sketch. Fucking, I, uh, I posted this screenshot to Twitter yesterday of, um, it's this, uh, like, 15,000-year-old drawing of a weasel, uh, where the caption on it was, like, uh, an extremely rare uh, drawing of a weasel executed in 10 flawless strokes. Where it's like, wow, incredible. And then someone just replied being like, yeah, but nearby in the cave, there was just like 50 really dog shit weasels. <laughs> but like, you never see, uh, it's always, you know, like the famous cave paintings like Lascaux and um, Altamira and all the other ones. These are beautiful drawings. We don't see the practice ones. We're not seeing the drafts. What's the deal with that? I think they they must just rub them out immediately afterwards. Yeah, they're just like getting some water and just being like, oh, God, that buffalo looks awful. <laughs> I couldn't let anyone see that. <laughs> this woolly mammoth looks like absolute shit. That's very strange. Maybe there's just like, I don't know. Yeah, it's very weird. Art, weird. Uh, 37,000 BC, the Venus of Holofels is carved from a piece of mammoth ivory, what is now Germany, likely by a Cro-Magnon. Before we killed those sons of bitches. Uh, there's a, a thing I was reading where they sort of, you know, all we can do is look at this. So it's a, it's one of the statues we classify as a Venus statue, which is usually a sort of like totemic fertility thing where it is abroad with huge cans. <laughs> and it's nice that sort of passed through the ages. Yeah, the concept of uh, a lady with big jugs and a dump truck ass uh, <laughs> has been with us for 40,000 years now. Uh, they, one of the things I saw was uh, they described it as possibly having pornographic use. Like, someone <laughs> whittled this out of mammoth ivory and it was just like, um, I'm just gonna, just gonna go out into the scrub for a little while with my little, my little Venus for a second. I'll be right back. Don't, don't come looking for me. Now, my child, the third cave from the right, <laughs> full of unimaginable horrors. <laughs> You must never enter the third it's, cave from the right. Oh, so many scary predators in there. And sometimes they make weird grunting noises and heavy breathing. So <laughs> you just think there's like titty tribes and ass tribes? <laughs> right, that's actually how they Warring classify the, the Venuses. <laughs> subdivided into titty Venuses and ass Venuses. <laughs> uh, and the rare Ambi Venus. It's got both, baby. Uh, 71,000 BC. Ochre crayons are used to draw cross-hatching on a cave wall in the southern tip of Africa. 
73,000 goddamn years ago, people made crayons and started drawing sort of geometric patterns on wall. But not just geometric patterns. They've got... So it's like... You've got full tone and you've got nothing. And they've gone, well, what if it was something sort of... <laughs> some subtlety in between? Some sort of half tone. Uh, and they invented comics at that point. <laughs> Sorry, this is actually... I What I meant to say is this is the history of Garfield going back to the start of human <laughs> evolution. Uh, so this is that... Um, Lombos Cave, I think that place is called. I don't know why I didn't write that down. Uh, is so far the candidate for the single oldest um, piece of art by uh, a modern human. Damn. That we have. But that's not as far back as it goes. Uh, 500,000 BC, roughly. Uh, a Homo erectus in what is now Java. Uh, carves a geometric pattern into the back of a shell. So we found these shells that have these sort of... Again, it's kind of a cross uh, crosshatch sort of pattern carved on the back of some shells near some other shells that were also used for tool use, uh, from what we can tell. So this is 500,000 years ago. So this is not modern humans. These are Homo erectus, which look similar-ish to us, but they're, you know, more stooped, uh, hairier, uh, so it's sort of like the difference between, say, you and me. <laughs> I'm enjoying that I'm the more highly involved one. Oh, absolutely! In this I have relationship, horrible this- posture and a very pronounced forehead. <laughs> 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 but that's not as far back as art goes. God damn it! Uh, before that, between 2.9 and 2.5 million BC, someone picks up a rock, and it's a very special rock. Uh, here is a description of that rock from a 1998 journal article from the archaeologist Robert Bednarik, an Australian man, uh, published in the South African Archaeological Bulletin. Here we go. And I'm probably going to pronounce this... I'm going to try and pronounce it the right way the first time, and then I'm going to pronounce it the easy way all the other times. The Makapanshat Kobol is 83.3 millimetres long, 69.5 millimetres wide, and 38.4 millimetres thick, of an overall well-rounded, symmetrical, and somewhat flattened shape. Weighs about 260 grams and consists of a reddish-brown jasperite of locally variable composition. It is crisscrossed by a network of numerous greyish-green quartz veins that range in thickness from 0.2 to 1 millimetres. This stone bears a surprising similarity to that of a jasperite pleistocene, pleistocene, pleistocene quarry I discovered recently on the Indonesian island of Roti, i.e. also on one of the Gondwana land plates. An early erosion phase has given rise to several grooves and depressions where less resistant inclusions have been worn away. The most prominent of these are three major depressions located centrally and symmetrically on one of the two flattened surfaces. Their striking appearance and distinctive arrangement strongly convey the impression of a face. Although this may not be the orientation in which Australopithecus would have viewed the cobble, Dart, 1974, for the purpose of description, I will call these three features here the eyes and mouth of the cobble. Previously, the object has been described as a pebble, but that is technically incorrect, as the terms pebble and cobble have distinctive granulometric meanings. Didn't know that. So, it's a rock. Smallish. Looks like it has a face on it. It uh, looks all the world like the shit-happens smiley face. 
Yes, but like pained. Just like yeah. in a more pained expression. Uh, so this rock was found in 1925 in a cave in the Makapan Valley in South Africa by a school teacher named Wilfred Eitzman. Uh, most importantly, it was discovered amongst a whole mess of Australopithecus Africanus bones. Now, this in itself is not crazy interesting. Uh, rocks and bones go together like a Theo and a Ben, as I've written here in the notes. Uh-huh. Love to find rocks and bones with each other. Uh, here is a snippet from that same article describing what makes it interesting. This brings us to the main issue relating to the Makapanskut cobble. According to Dart, the nearest known source of such stone is 32 kilometres from the site. Although B. McGuire uh, suggests that it could have come from a banded ironstone outcropping 4.8 kilometres north-northeast of the Limeworks site. However, the cobble clearly originates from a siliceous conglomerate and its initial provenance cannot be established. Since the cave contained no water-transported sediments that could have entered from some high-lying locality, the cobble could have been introduced only artificially. It is much too large to have been in the gut of some bird. Lol. And he's not talking about a lady here. Uh, and since it occurs at a late Pliocene deposit, it is not likely to have been transported by humans. The most parsimonious conclusion is that it was carried into the cave by the Australopithecines, whose remains occur in the same deposit. So, what he's saying there is that that rock was carried there by some Australopithecus africanus. Yeah, they saw a rock, Mm -hmm. were able to think, that's a nice rock. Yes. There is something aesthetically pleasing about that particular rock. And I want you to... So, you might not be an expert on the... you Maybe you are, I don't know, uh, of the various kinds of hominid that... Uh, are in our sort of line of evolution. Australopithecus africanus does not look a whole lot like us. If you if you Google that right now, have a look at an image, give yourself some context, they look closer to like the monkeys at the start of 2001 uh, than they do to us now. That's about where we're at timeline-wise. Uh, you also could probably surmise from that that they don't have pockets. No, that, that was my other thought as well. They don't have tote bags, backpacks. No. Um, those uh, travel not even the socks. Bum bag. No, not even bum bags. So it's an act of quite a lot of intentionality to carry an object, whether it's five kilometers or thirty-two kilometers. Uh, that that requires a lot of conscious effort, right? Especially if that object has no immediate utility to you. So uh, the. The suggestion here is that it's a manuport, which is a natural object which has been moved from its original context by human agency but remains otherwise unmodified. So this is something we have ascribed some sort of significance to. Uh, And if it is one, it's the oldest one we have ever found. The further suggestion being that this represents the oldest example of symbolic thinking in any of our hominid ancestors, right? Of ascribing meaning to something that is not inherent to it. Yeah, so the long the long thought on this is is that they were able to recognize an abstraction of themselves mm-hmm. in this rock. Yes. In the appearance of this rock which has two dots and a little groove which we immediately recognize as a, a smiley face. Yeah, we look at it and we go, "Hey, look at this little guy." Hey, just like us. <laughs> uh here's here's something else. This is from prehistorian James Harrod. 
Uh, geologic history indicates that it was probably picked out of a slow-floating stream or flood channel, sorry, slow-flowing stream or flood channel, and carried for a considerable distance into the cave, which has Australopithecus, Africanus, and other remains. Its initial provenance cannot be securely determined. Anthropologist Raymond Dart suggests it's from a source 32 kilometers away. Others suggest somewhat closer sources. With its red color, which would have been highly distinctive in its geologic setting, quartz inclusions and anthropomorphic features, Bednarik observes, I have never seen a natural stone object with such remarkable visual properties. Dart and others have noted that the piece has three faces depending on orientation. Face one shown, I'm sorry, this is accompanied by images in the original text, but this is the obvious one. If you Google Makapan's gut pebble, uh, it's the, the orientation it's always shown in from the front face. Uh, for face two, turn it upside down. <laughs> That's a fun little thing you can do. Turn your computer upside down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the obverse side has face three. Dart interprets face two as Australopithecine-like. Face three is possibly a toothless oldster. Bednarik suggests that face three presents a face resembling the reconstruction of an Australopithecine face wearing a friendly if somewhat mischievous grin. Uh, face one would be too much like a current sapiens face, uh, in either case, all agree that the individual who carried to the site had an iconographic sense. This is the earliest evidence for aesthetic sense in the hominid line. Bednarik concludes, based on the object, that it is, in my view, essential to expect Australopithecine behaviour to be significantly more complex uh, in a cultural and cognitive sense than that of any extant non-human primate. Uh, so, yeah, that's just wild. It's a wild thing to picture that, you know, some bent-over ape, man is walking along sees the thing in the stream he's like hey that's a shiny red rock he looks at it he sees two little dots he sees a mouth and he's just like huh holy fuck everyone is going to go fucking nuts for this when i take it back to this the cave looks just like dennis <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i bet it was absolutely used as an ode just like gets back and he's like ah! hey, hey hey that's you that's you <laughs> that's your mate just pointing at it uh, this is how uh, Benrick uh, concluded his article. Uh, there's a tiny little bit of repetition here from the last thing. Sorry. Uh, the visual properties of the Makapanskat cobble are so striking that some commentators have found it hard to believe that it is simply a natural product. That, however, is precisely what it is. It bears no trace of any artificial modification. Having examined vast numbers of silica nodules and other natural phenomena of often fantastic shapes, I confess that I have never seen a natural stone object with such remarkable visual properties. The symmetry of the eyes in particular, especially in relation to the head-like shape of the stone, is impossible to overlook, and this feature has an almost menacing quality. I concur with Eitzman, Dart, and Oakley that the subject was collected by Australopithecines for its visual qualities and that its iconographic properties were recognised by these creatures. As Dart has pointed out, the face most readily perceived in the object by modern humans resembles human features, which it could not have been recognised as such by Australopithecines. However, when the stone is turned over, it presents a face resembling the reconstruction of an Australopithecine face wearing a friendly, if somewhat mischievous, grin. Perhaps this was the orientation Australopithecus would have preferred, although I feel that the staring eyes are far more prominent, and in combination with the striking colour, led to the object being picked up. Wonderful. Just tremendous. I Yeah, I love this thing so much. I think about it so often. Just... Such a weirdly human connection with an ancestor that is so, so incredibly distant from us. And also just like the amount of coincidences involved here for this to be a thing, you know, in terms of like for all of the natural processes to like, it's not particularly hard for humans to see faces in things, but I mean, to end up with the symmetrical eyes and a kind of mouth 
you know, this is a process that would have, that rock would have been formed over millions of years. It, it somehow ends up in a stream bed. One of these guys just happens to walk past it of millions and millions of rocks, uh, picks it up, carries it all the way home. It ends up sitting in a cave and somehow, you know, a, a school teacher, a school teacher in the twenties, uh, goes and checks it out. And then he sees this rock lying among the bones and he's like, holy shit. This is probably an important rock. And then now, you know, some 100 years later, here we are talking about it. What a chain of events. What a chain of events. Oh, I think that's probably the end of the first Theophiles. I'd say so. Which we've recorded after we finished recording the end of the second one. Uh-huh. Uh, for reasons we're not going to go into. Nope. But we, uh, we will say that we did lose the Mulder's butthole bit. Yep. 15 minutes oh, on Mulder's butthole. Mulder jacking off. There's um, some great stuff in there. Yep. All lost to the sands of time. <sighs> some great gags. But you know what? We experienced them. And that's probably more important than, than the listener than having than experienced you guys them. Here, yeah, yeah, yeah not, that's right. Oh, no, I'm not entirely sure about that one now that I think about it, actually. So uh, if we do if we do more of these, which we already have, um, we will chuck them. <laughs> if we are going to have had done more of them. Yep. Which say we, we had. Yep. Uh, we'll uh, eventually chuck them on the bonus uh, feed. So um, if you do want to hear more of that, um, then you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Vista uh, and you can check them out. If you don't want to hear more of them, then we probably won't put any more on the main feed. So yep. more fool us. Yeah, I, I mean, that actually kind of works for everyone. Uh, yeah, let us know if you like them. We thought this would be a fun format for us personally to do uh fuck andrew and lucy don't really care what they think uh as soon as they can drink beer in the same room as us they can come on the theophiles that's true that wouldn't that be nice i'd love to see them both oh well what are you gonna do all right stay safe out there everyone we'll uh talk to you soon bye bye